All right, Brian, you gonna kick this thing off, man? Yeah, big red button. You know, it's funny. It's the safe to hit button. the. It's it's safe to hit the big red button on my on my laptop here to record. It's very rarely safe to hit the big red red button in the data center. So it feels almost like a bit of a challenge to hit it every time. So it doesn't have a glass case on it. So we're good. Um, yeah, who's? Uh, we didn't really discuss this, so I'm just gonna go ahead and do the intro to the, intro to the show. Um, this is uh, this is a hot aisle episode. And I'm almost a little bit rusty because we took a break. We needed a mental break. So yeah. uh, we're back and we're hot and this is the hot owl. So I'm Brian Carpenter. And I'm Brent Piatti. And uh, today, the, the goal of this show is to educate you on some you know cool software stuff, a, a stack that is kind of built for this digital economy. Uh, it enables self-service and kind of access to information. Um, there's real-time real behavioral analytics uh, from event data, time series data, and more. And I don't even know what those things are, but we're going to get into that. Um, and the reason that I don't know those things, but we're going to learn those things, is because we brought a great guest with us. Uh, and that's Bobby Johnson. Bobby, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Glad you're here. So, um, Bobby, why don't you tell us, just give us the, the rundown on exactly what your current job is and uh, who you work for, and then we'll get into your, your kind of your history and how we got here in the first place. Okay, great. I, uh, so about four years ago, I started a company called Interana, and we do data analysis software. And in particular, we really focus on looking at behavior, which could be, uh, you know, for a phone company that could be churn or fraud, for a web or mobile company that could be how are people using the product, uh, where are they getting stuck, what features are they using well. Um, and we've to, to do this, we built a, uh, a system, both a, a back-end database as well as a user interface. So it's sort of a, a, uh, a self-contained system that makes it really easy and accessible. And so a lot of our, sort of our the, the mission of our company is to get sort of the power of big data into everybody's hands and, and really get good business value out of it. Cool. So CTO, founder of Interana, you've been there for about four and a half years, but, uh, You've actually got some experience in, in analytics, right? This is not your first foray into it. So talk to us about your past and, and what kind of got you into this space. Yeah, so I, was at, uh, so I was director of engineering at Facebook for a long time. And so I was uh, responsible for the infrastructure team there, uh, which meant scaling from a few million users to almost a billion in the time I was there. And ended up being involved in a lot of the open source stuff that's uh, that's common in in the the world today. So I wrote a piece of software called Scribe, which is a uh, sort of a precursor to things like Kafka today. It was a, a logging system, and then um, my team brought in Hadoop, uh, wrote Hive, wrote Cassandra. Um, I also worked a lot of Memcache, MySQL stuff, and so I spent a long time sort of working on how to get these tools to scale, how to and you know how to how to get them to be really accessible to the company. It was also an interesting experience because I saw, you know, how a lot of these things are used. So inside Facebook, it was a very very data data literate, data centric culture, um, and sort of seeing how how much that that matters to people was really helpful. Yeah. So I think our listeners are probably familiar with Cassandra because we had data stacks on in the past. But Hive is probably they're less familiar with that. Quickly describe what Hive is. Yeah, so Hive is a layer of software that takes SQL queries and it turns them into MapReduce jobs. So if you have a Hadoop cluster, you can run SQL queries against it. It also does some metadata management and so layers some schema on top of it. Uh, makes it makes a Hadoop cluster look a little bit more like a data warehouse. Awesome. So, and then and then Hive, I, I believe, is, is more uh, geared towards uh, the Hortonworks uh, distribution. Does it work with any others? Oh uh, yeah, it'll work on any distribution. It was uh, it was sort of the first SQL on Hadoop thing that came out. Now there's a ton of them, and there's actually a lot of engines now that are uh, sort of faster and do all kinds of new interesting things. But Hive was sort of the the original. Right on. Yeah, and I think it's important to understand that, right? I mean, so it, the 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 way of interfacing with with data in the Hadoop world is you know um, well multiple multiple ways, but SQL being one of those one of those ways and. Um, I think you guys do a good job of simplifying that and kind of uh, uh, reducing the, the 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 requirements or the knowledge for the user from the Interana platform, and we'll get into into that. Um, so, from a from an education standpoint, you uh, went to Caltech, got a uh, a bachelor's in engineering and applied science. 
something had to lead you down this path of um, being interested in in the in, in technology and science. What was that thing? Oh, what did get me? That's an interesting question. Um, oh, I always love science because it has it has actual answers to things. <laughs> I mean, when I was a kid, I uh, I started programming when I was uh, I mean ten or eleven years old. Uh, just uh, had the good fortune that um, have access to an Apple II and learned Basic actually before I ever like learned algebra. And um, so I was programmed since I was a kid, and yeah, just always loved science because you could actually make progress. You could learn new things and uh, sort of be fairly confident you can move on to the next thing. Um, yeah, so I ended up at Caltech. I actually did mechanical engineering at Caltech, but I uh, discovered I really loved writing code once I got out in the real world. And So do you, uh, do you goof at all in your free time with your mechanical engineering um, you know, experience? Are you, uh, are you a tinkerer of toys, especially with all the kind of uh, readily available electronics? You know, we see people who are doing things like just building drones left and right or uh, building 3D printers or, you know, maybe you just build bridges or, you know, who knows? I guess it's no, more I civil. My bad. I didn't mean to call you a civil engineer. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I have been on and off at the moment, like running a company. Like I, it, there's, yeah, I'd love to uh, to have time to go play with 3D printers and things, but uh, but at the moment it's just software. Yeah, that makes sense. So we're morbidly curious uh, as we dig up kind of things to help uh, people understand who you are. Uh, I noticed a patent on storage and privacy service. Now maybe that's uh, looks like it's in 2016. Yeah. So did that. Did that come from Facebook days, or is that Interana days, or? Yeah, that was in Facebook. That was uh, kind of a skunkworks project at Facebook, where we wanted to take a lot. I mean, it was sort of been a an idea that had been kicked around for years and years, and we wanted to take the data access rules and push them down into the storage layer. And uh, it was it was more of kind of a research project. We ended up. Uh, Basically, a bunch of the things we figured out along the way sort of got incorporated into the Facebook stack. Uh, at one point, we did actually have a server that literally did that, but it's not the thing that runs Facebook at the moment. Uh, but yeah, that was interesting. We had like a whole, uh, you know, like a, a domain-specific language for specifying rules, and because uh, the, the privacy rules on Facebook are really quite complicated for a lot of good reasons, and so the idea was to get it pushed down in the stack, so it was much harder to. Uh, to mess it up, easier to test it, be sure it's enforced. That's pretty cool stuff. So you've mentioned a couple of times your Facebook history and some of the things that obviously you learned from doing things like Scribe and Cassandra and your teams doing Hive. Um, but just generally from a culture, as you know, we, we research from you, there's a lot of things that you learned at Facebook that have probably, especially you and your co-founders, um, have brought in to kind of drive your thought processes around Interana. So as we transition there, I'd really like to understand what it, what you brought with you from just a, a learning and education kind of foundations perspective to drive what it is you're trying to build at Interana. Yeah, cool. So I can actually uh, back up and tell a little bit of the story. Uh, might be interesting. So when I, when I arrived at Facebook in 2006, it actually wasn't particularly data-driven. It was, you know, the thing was growing like crazy and everybody was just rushing around trying to keep the you know, keep the wheels on the, on the, on the bus. And, um, I ended up pretty early on realizing we needed some logging software for a bunch of kind of specific things. We had to count ad clicks. We had to do, uh, you know, there were, there's sort of specific metrics we had to track. And so there are three or four specific use cases we needed to log data for. And I'd heard three or four other use cases that people had brought up that, uh, you know, things that people wanted to log that they didn't have. So, you know, this is probably worth spending a little bit of time to build something general and nice to do this, uh, you know, because there's, you know, three or four I know about, another three or four I've heard of. There's probably another three or four floating out there, too. And so I wrote the thing, and but within six months, um, and when we wrote it, one of the things we did to try to, that was really important, was just make it really easy to kind of drop it into the code so anybody who was, who was working on the site could add something. Um, and six months later, we had... Uh, something like a hundred different logging categories. Like it was just people just came out of the woodworks. Like everybody in the company had something that they were curious about, and it actually had a real effect on the culture of the company. We would used to things we used to argue about. We would like literally sit and argue about points of fact. Like, hey, you know, I wonder if anybody ever uses this button. I want to get rid of it, and somebody would be arguing very strongly for why everybody uses it, and somebody else arguing that you know then nobody uses it, and all of a sudden we could just log it and look. And it, uh, you know, we got to argue about much more interesting things after that. So 
that was really eye-opening how much kind of demand there was for this uh just across all kinds of different things so but then once we did this it um you know we had all this data and so that's when we brought in hadoop to basically we needed much more you know it just made it really really easy to scale it and just dump endless data into this thing uh, it was also interesting in those days we get a lot of pushback from people who thought that it was a waste of money to buy storage to put all this information on and uh but the the problem is that you don't know what you're going to need until you log it and so it was sort of uh you know in the early days everybody's like no it, like the whole point of logging is you're really careful about getting exactly the right thing there the right piece of information and you know carefully thinking about the schema and we had the complete opposite experience we're just like dump it all in buy lots of machines hadoop made it easy because we could you know just continue to throw in more hard drives and more uh, more machines uh, but you you know you never knew what was going to be in there until you till you actually dug through it and it could even be like months later you realize something went wrong and you want to go back and pick through it so uh, so then we brought in hadoop and then we went on a journey of several years of trying to make hadoop work for analytics uh, so it turns out hadoop is really good for saving tons of data uh, and it's really good for certain kinds of processing. So we, we immediately set it up as sort of our ETL thing uh, for basically rolling up key metrics, things like that. It was great for overnight jobs for that. It's good at building search engines or search indexes, doing, um, you know, building machine models, all these kind of like large kind of well-known batch processing things where you kind of know beforehand what, what it is you need to compute. Uh, but it was just terrible for doing analytics. It was just so hard to use and so slow. And so we ended up, and that's when we ended up writing Hive, uh, which was a big step forward. Actually, it was interesting when we went from having just MapReduce to having Hive, you know, we went from like three or four users to maybe 20 or 30 users. And then we, uh, we wrote a little web front end to Hive where you literally just put in, there's a little box for each part of a SQL query. It even had a little drop down for whether you want to do a left join or a right join. Uh, and it, so it didn't actually make anything sort of intellectually simpler, but dramatic increase in, in usage. Um, you know, that got us up into having, uh, you know, kind of hundreds of users of this thing. Uh, but it was still really slow. People would spend, um, you know, a really good day. You might get five or six queries run on the Hadoop system. And so you know, really common workflows where people would actually, a heavily used button was the thing that said, give me 50,000 rows that I can put in Excel and then go jockey around with it in Excel, figure out, you know, make some hypotheses, and then go run my, my real thing. So we spent, um, you know, kind of years trying to, trying to wrestle Hadoop into being good at analytics and eventually ended up writing uh, a bunch of different tools that, didn't, that, that were much more built for sort of humans to interact with versus machines. And, so, Bobby, real quick, I just wanted to double click on to the yeah. basically time to result portion. So, you know, Hadoop yeah. not being great for analytics. Um, is it more due to the front end, you know, whether it's a SQL or the MapReduce kind of queries that go along with that? Or is it the processing time by, you know, HDFS uh, on the back end? Uh, it's, it's a combination of the two. It's really both. It's... Um, you know, and the, the processing time gets better if you get more machines, and a lot of the newer engines are a little bit faster, but it's still, you know, in the old days, we'd run literally overnight or, you know, two, three hours for a query. But even if you get it down to, like, five or ten minutes, that's still just, like, really different than having something pop back in, like, ten seconds. You you end up, you think about it a lot more, you have to be a lot more careful, and then then there is the time for building the queries. The other thing is that if building the queries is too hard and you have to go get help from somebody, that's where it really kills you on the time to an answer. You've got to go bother somebody. And that's where you know, a lot of people who could get a lot of value from these kind of tools get turned off and essentially you know, just you know, guess at things rather than, rather than measuring them. Yeah, if I had to work, so gonna, if I had to wait for thirty minutes on something, my work ADD would kick in. Right, there's some some conversation in Slack would happen, and the next thing you know, I'm off on something else, and I'd forget about that for two days. And I'd be like, yeah. man, I had that window open. What was I looking for? And I, I I literally couldn't remember it. And then I'd have to have a piece of paper to write it down. And that's very. Yeah, it's even worse when when you're at Facebook and part of your job is having Facebook open. <laughs> yeah. Then you're really not getting back to it for a long time. Yeah. Well, I wanted to. So so. You know, you're, you're talking about uh, you know the more machines you have in HDFS and and you you wrote a blog um, 
that was the myth of in memory. So I guess mm-hmm. why not just put everything in memory? We've got Spark and and uh, whatever else is out there. I can't remember all the names anymore. Spark and Storm and Flink yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, so the thing is, is if you get it in memory, it it's great. And so, and one of the, and this is kind of a myth that came out of Facebook, is it's like, oh yeah, they just they buy an ungodly number of machines and they put it all in RAM and then it just works. And you know, it's true if you get it in RAM, it's great. And there are a lot of problems that do fit in memory and you just absolutely do it. But you know, memory gets cheaper, but so do disks and so do sensors and so do the things that are, you know, the networks that are fanning in all of this data. And so the, you know, there's still a huge space of use cases that are too big to go in memory. And See, even at Facebook, like all of our effort was for dealing with the stuff that spilled out of memory. Yeah, it would seem that there there probably is some sort of curve on the growth of actual data that's being captured. You know, it's exponentially like hockey stick growing. And at the same time, memory's price is coming down in almost like a linear fashion. So, uh, I mean, that argument's pretty easy to prove, right? That's almost as easy as like, it, are you using that button? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing that has, has made the biggest difference is Flash because... There is, you know, it's before Flash, it was a much harder game because the cliff was so big from memory to disk. And now there's a lot of things that people use to run as memory applications that do pretty well against Flash. And you can be a little less crazy about avoiding seeks. Um, but at the end of the day, there's still, I mean, there's still people who use tapes, right? And uh, certainly a huge span of data that, you know, spinning disk is still the way to, the way to hold it. So uh, you you know talked about all these problems and how you're trying to solve them on scale for a bunch of people to give them easy access to data, which helps them make good decisions like, should I remove that button? I have a first curiosity before we get into the real meat of the story. Did nobody ever apply that kind of logging to the poke button? Because <laughs> I really have no idea why it's still there. Besides, I do that to my wife like once a month. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. I yeah. Uh... No, that's the thing about the poke button. That was all fun about it. Nobody knew what it was. It was, uh, <laughs> we once had a, it was really funny. We used to have deep down in the help, if you clicked on what is a poke, it literally said, we don't really know either. That's awesome. Uh, and uh, the idea is that like, and it's actually kind of a powerful idea in it, which is that in, um, in there's a lot of nonverbal subtle ways when you're actually in person socializing with somebody that you send cues and so the poke was sort of supposed to be kind of a lightweight thing that i don't have to actually think of what i'm going to say it's just sort of like it, it's a poke and so uh, yeah at one point we did a user test and we had this person literally got so mad and they're like what's a poke what's a poke and they found the help and it said that and they're like is this a real website is this a real computer <laughs> that's awesome well, yeah. you know, it's uh, I guess there's always there's always a little bit of an Easter egg in every in every project. And maybe that's poke and who knows what else is out there. But we digress. Um, we were massively curious about um, what you're doing today, given what you've brought with you and kind of what you learned on trying to give people uh, interactive analytics. So um, tell us a little bit about how you started. You know, was there this aha moment? Was it kind of like you know, hey, that we've we've reached our end where we're at, or you know, where did this happen? You know, are you in a coffee shop? Are you like at a wine bar? Like, where where does Interana kind of start? Um, well, so um, let's see. So I left I left Facebook, and um, so my wife and I had always. She also we met at Caltech and had kind of been building things together since Caltech, and we'd wanted to start a company together, and so we. Uh, you know, we took some, we took some time off and just were talking to lots of people, and it really became apparent that a lot of the things we started to take for granted at Facebook just weren't available anywhere else. Um, you know, we had seen, you know, we'd been in this culture where everybody could like literally access the data about almost anything, and that was just part of your job. It's expected that this is your workflow. As you look at you, you measure things and you see how they're doing, and you, uh, you know, you ask you ask questions, and so. Uh, it was pretty eye-opening as we went to talk around to, to other people that uh, that this really was, you know, kind of, uh, you know, it was, it was much less uh, prevalent outside of that. And so we, uh, so we decided to do a company uh, to, you know, take a bunch of these things we learned. There's also um, sort of having gone through the Hadoop and Hive experience and built a lot of those other tools. And we built a lot, you know, a lot of tools that were good and a lot of tools that were terrible. And so 
uh, we had a pretty good idea what kinds of things actually mattered. Um, and so actually my, my co-founder, Lior, and so then, so my wife and I were starting a company and we, uh, everybody kept saying, you need to talk to Lior. And he, um, so I'd worked with Lior years ago doing site performance. And then he um, sort of, you know, came to the realization that site performance is just a data problem and started building data tools. And so he had built a thing called Scuba, which was a really fast, easy visual interface. And, uh, ended up with more than half the employees at Facebook were active users of the tool. It was kind of the one, uh, it was one visual tool that people, like people usually spend a lot of time complaining about the analy- their analytics tools. And this was, he, he actually made the one that people loved. And so we, uh, yeah, we decided to get together and build kind of a new backend infrastructure for how to make it, um, you know, to get really good latency and answer the kinds of, I mean, the other thing we realized is that the kinds of questions that people actually care about are not the kinds of questions that SQL is sort of elegant for answering. Like SQL is really good for transactional databases and sort of talking about sort of, you know, objects that relate to each other in, in a tree, but it's not very good about what, what you care about in analytical workloads is you care about, you know, what happened, how is this changing over time? What if, if somebody did this, did they do this next? Uh, those kinds of questions are really hard with traditional tools. And, you know, as we wanted to, to to sort of talk to people as we're forming the idea, that was, it was really clear that that was kind of, that was a hard question that everybody desperately needed the answer to and had a terrible time squeezing out of existing tools. Um, so I think we just got to be honest here, Bobby. Like, I, th- I think most of us are jealous that we can't go home at night and talk to our significant other about what we actually do without getting that deer in the headlights look. So you're you've basically reached like, you know, the pinnacle of of relationship. You own a company, started a company with your wife, and then you get to go home and talk about work. And you guys both actually understand what the hell you're talking about. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, her uh, <laughs> yeah her previous life actually was uh, doing uh, doing physics at Intel. So I I couldn't talk to her about that as well. <laughs> so this is great. It was nice. Yeah. For, it was nice for her to down level for you, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the, uh, yeah, and I, well, I mean, it's interesting too because you start a company. It's like you really need to be able to communicate and really trust the people you're working with. And so, you know, I bump into a lot of people like, "Oh my God, I can't believe you did start a company with your wife." But it's, uh, I can't. I don't know how you start a company with somebody you haven't, you know, you had like a, a long, deep relationship with. So, yeah, and it's uh, it's funny because, like, I barely trust Brent, and we've been working together for years, so I know exactly what you think. <laughs> so, you know, moving on, we, you know, right now, so right now you're obviously in full swing. Uh, it looks like you were incubated at uh, Y Combinator, so that sounds pretty cool. Are there any neat stories about that that you can tell us? Uh, like, yeah, Y Combinator, is like a, it was an awesome place because we, I mean, was, we're all engineers, all three of us, and we didn't. We had no idea how to start a company, and so we uh, we signed up for Y Combinator because they know how to start companies. And it's um, yeah, it's one. It's a, it's a really really optimistic place, which is really fun. When you're starting a company, it's um, it's easy to underestimate how important optimism is. And you go, you talk to VCs, and the first thing any VC will tell you, you you sort of you say what you're going to do, and you don't really know what you're doing yet, so you kind of mumble through something. And the first thing they do is name five companies that already do that and do it better than they think you will. And it's pretty demoralizing. Um, but you go to YC and they're just like, well, what are you going to make? And they say, well, does somebody want it? You know, do you have evidence that somebody wants it? And do you believe you're capable of making it? And it's like, okay, if you do those things, just like go for it. And you know, the rest will, uh, the rest will work itself out. And, uh, so yeah, that was, uh, like a wonderful way to get started. So they, uh, they're also very good at knowing what is wasting time. They're very good at recognizing people wasting time on things. So you get you get moving fast. And did you get a lot of your, I mean, have you received some customers from kind of the the, the network that Y Combinator has built, right? Like I saw um, Reddit in your list. And so I assume there's probably some relationship there that was helped by kind of that, that same basic foundation. Uh, any of the others that you've got there? I mean, there's a there. I mean, your customer list is fantastic at this point. So it's really kind of interesting to go through and see how they're using them. Yeah, thanks. It's yeah. I think some of those did come from. Um, I mean, none of them were just directly. This was a person who 
who is sitting next to us at YC, but it is a, uh, yeah, it, it was really good to get into the network. Um, I mean, with, with a lot of these things, it's you know, sort of every network you can be in helps a little bit. You get a few more ways in, you know, and if it's, and if you're dealing with a big company, you know, it's, you know, the, so the more people, you know, to sort of get excited about it, the better. So yeah, it was definitely helpful with that. So let's get into the meat of why these people are, are kind of gravitating to Interana, right? So again, I'll mention a couple of them just because they're cool. Like Sonos, got one in my house, Reddit, Reddit, Reddit this morning. Imager, as a result of Reddit, I've been on there this morning. Uh, Tinder, I will not say that out loud, but I honestly, the other day I didn't even know it cost money, so it's kind of funny. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of really interesting customers. Um, you know, I'm curious if Facebook's one, but... Uh, tell us, you know, why are people gravitating to your platform and exactly what are they consuming and what is it doing for their business? Let's really get into this thing and see uh, what they're yeah. doing and what they're not doing as a result of, of consuming your platform. Yeah. So what, so, so what we really try to bring people is, again, this thing that we saw at Facebook, which is that everybody in the company just has day-to-day -day access to the data. And another thing that's kind of important to, to point out is that a lot of people, when they think about data analysis, they sort of think there's going to be one giant, you know, thunderbolt from God that's going to tell you a thing that changes everything. And that's not how it works at all. It's like every day you make like a thousand little decisions and every person in your company makes a thousand little decisions. And if, you know, you make 10 or 20 of them better because you knew something that you didn't know before, uh, you know, over time that really adds up. And so it's, uh, I sort of the analogy I like is it's like turning on the lights in a room. It's like usually you don't see anything very interesting, but it's nice to be able to turn on the lights so you don't stub your toe. And every once in a while you do see something that is surprising. But you know, it's sort of that that day in day out, be able to look at at whatever is important to the business. So, uh, so for example, at um, uh, yeah, I, I love Sonos as a customer as well. Like I'm all, also love their product and. They have, so they care about things like from when you first plug in your Sonos to your first song play, that's really critical for them because that's what's going to make you love the thing and use it uh, and not ship it back to them. And so, you know, that can go wrong for a lot of ways. It could be because of a problem on your wireless network. It could be because their iPhone app is confusing. And so what they do is they take the, the data from the device as well as the data from the iPhone app and the web app, and they sort of load it all in. And so then our tool... Um, we ingest all that data. We actually keep it raw. Uh, another thing that we, we learned at Facebook is hugely important is that you have to, you know, once you start rolling things up beforehand, you lose all the stuff you're going to care about. Again, you can answer sort of the one important, you know, you can, you can report a number to your board or whatever, but you can't ask those thousand little questions unless you really have all the data there. So, so we ingest all of that and we have a pretty loose schema. So it's sort of anything, you know, essentially if there's a timestamp on each of these rows, they kind of have whatever fields they have. And, and then people working at, at Sonos can, can use that to answer these kind of questions. So a product manager would really care about asking, um, you know, these questions about where we, uh, people dropping off in the onboarding, uh, in the onboarding flow, somebody in business development might care about the different services people are using and how is that trending and how does that differ by demographics? Um, so those, uh, you know, so we end up, we, you know, we have hundreds of users at Sonos that use this just kind of across all kinds of different job functions. And what were they doing before you? Like, what, uh, so they, what was their real life like before your ease of use? So they still, so, so it was a combination of sort of the things that were the most important. They, they got those answers, but a great effort. So they had, uh, they actually have quite a sophisticated data team. They were, um, with a bunch of different tools. So they would have an ETL pipeline and a data warehouse that, that had a lot of the business metrics. Uh, they used, uh, when well, they still do use Splunk for a lot of their operational stuff, and they were trying to, to use that for the user data and getting some of the answers out of that. And so there was sort of a, a small group of people there who were able to get these answers, but it was mostly the, you know, they were, they were data experts, they were professionals and, and data and the people. So there was a lot more back and forth um, and that's another thing we see in a lot of these places is that the people who have, you know, somebody is, their title is data scientist, but they really do is they sit there all day and get Jira tickets about, I, you know, tell me a good count of this thing. And they, they, they type in SQL queries to give counts to other people. And so it's, and basically 
on, you know, that sucks for those people. It also sucks for the rest of the company because, you know, a lot of these little questions don't get answered. And that doesn't seem like a big deal. But if you do a good job of answering lots of them, you know, it adds up over time that ever, like all the little things you do are better. Yeah. And I thought, you know, in, in, in doing the research too, what I, what I thought um, was really neat was, you know, the fact that you're kind of, you know, you use these words, but democratize the data. Um, anybody can use the platform without having to know SQL or, or how to do any sophisticated map reduce jobs or anything like that. Um, so it gets these questions that may otherwise uh, not get answered immediately, or people are too afraid to ask because they don't want to bother the, you know, the the data warehouse team or the data science team. Now they can do it. Seems relatively easy uh, with the platform, and then they can just keep peppering the uh, platform with or the data with with questions. Yeah, and you know, one of the things also that we think is really important about making the data accessible and democratizing it is a lot of people think that means you have to dumb it down and oh i just want this like little you know one dashboard that tells you everything and we really disagree with that philosophy that it's you know people are really curious they have lots and lots of questions and so so making it easy means that you just have to make it fast and simple and straightforward but you still have to have the flexibility. It's not like you sort of get one insight and you figured your thing out. It's like every day you've got new questions, like every day the world throws new things at you. And um, so that that repeated access is really important. And every day you have new data. Yep. So talk to us then, uh, you, you brought up earlier, hey, we can we take data raw, right? Which I thought was funny. You did a blog, Sushi Principle, Raw <laughs> Data is Better. Um, so talk to us about you know what that means in your world what the preference is and, you know, and, and, and why raw is better than, you know, some, you know, schema on write or some sort of ETL process. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. And it's, uh, so, so what it means to us is not, it's not literally the, the raw bits. It's, uh, you know, it's like sushi, it's raw, but it's prepared. Um, and so there's kind of a, a, um, you know, having a little bit of structure and schema is good. The kind of, uh, but having to sort of very rigid schemas, you get into trouble. You end up with, uh, you know, because as you said, there's new data every day. Things change. People have new things they want to add. So it's uh, so having a fairly loose schema is really important. And then uh, you, you have to have every record there because, you know, a lot of questions people have, you know, just like all the interesting questions you can't roll up. You know, you can roll up your top level three or four dimensions to put on a dashboard and you know that will kind of that's fine like, like kind of looking at the roll-ups is fine for the, the the part of data analysis which is like hey let me see if there's a problem or not but once you know but that's a that's like five percent of the job is like let me figure out if something's wrong like most of the job is like once i see something that i don't understand you know either my registrations are tanking or my um you know, my thing that I thought was going to be a lot better was a lot worse. Then when you dig into that, you just don't know what you're going to find. Uh, I mean, you usually don't, you don't really, I mean, people are bad at asking questions. You know, you sort of have a vague idea that like, well, I kind of think maybe this. And the way you get to good questions is you ask a bunch of bad questions and you get answers and you sort of start to feel your way around and you see. Um, and so, you know, if you try to decide beforehand what's going to be important, I mean, it's the, pretty much every time I've, looked at a data set where I didn't previously have access to the data, you're always surprised at what it says. You know, your, you know, people's, people's models of what's going on in the physical world tend to be, you know, simplistic and naive. And so you sort of think, you know, what's going to happen and you look at the data and it's not what's happening. And if you, by that token, if you sort of decide beforehand what things are going to roll up, you're rolling up the wrong things. Like it's just got all there. Yeah, from a so if we if we talk about hey let's let's keep all these you know these time series or or events and and there's probably other components to this but um, how how large are the data sets uh, on average and then what's the largest and how do you how do you accommodate for that growth or the scalability within your platform? Yeah, so we um, uh, so so we wide range of data sizes. So we'll go from um, you know we have people with sort of a few million events a day up to people doing many billions per day. And so the, uh, the biggest, um, the, 
the biggest ones we're running are up into trillions of events. And so, uh, you know, essentially we do that using, yeah, again, a lot of these things that we, we learned at Facebook of running, you know, widely horizontal clusters. And so it's, uh, you know, and one of the, the things that's really important about the technology is getting things sort of arranged across the network. Um, Um, so that the, um, you know, so the queries can still be fast. And so we, uh, you know, we basically run on commodity hardware. And again, you know, as the myth of memory, like memory is nice. You want enough memory that sort of the hot things are around, but you know, the real trick is it has to be able to spill onto, um, you know, very large amounts of data. So, you know, often like in, um, you know, we might run machines with 30 gigs of RAM and a terabyte of drive uh, on a virtual machine. And so it's, uh, yeah, so, so sort of getting it, um, getting it just ingested it down on disk in a way that's going to be reasonable to pull it back out quickly, as well as, uh, you know, just everything has to be horizontally scaled for these things. So that, that makes sense. Um, and as people are, are working on this, right, and they're doing this stuff with whatever scale of data they're offering you, um, one of the things you kind of call out is that your product is built for behavior. Um, so first explain that. And then, you know, my second question on that is, are, you know, as you, as you look at behavior, are you doing that yourself in your own platform, right? So you've mm -hmm. offered the other people ability to look at behavior uh, and tell us what that does. And then tell me, are you doing the exact same thing in your own platform as you offer up your, your services to your end users? Yeah. So, um, Yes, absolutely. So behavior to to the end user, what it means is I care about, um, you know, questions of what my users or my customers or things that I care about are doing. And so that could be, uh, it actually could be a user. It could also be a virtual thing, like a topic on Reddit is an interesting thing to use behavior to watch. Uh, but it means that a lot of the questions are about if somebody did this, then they next do this, or after this happened, what's the most common thing that happens next? Uh, what's the time in between things? is sort of the uh, the user-facing thing. And then down in our engine, what we do is, you know, whereas there are a tradi traditional SQL engine is going to have a bunch of machinery for doing joins, we have a bunch of machinery for doing essentially state machines that if, um, so we can, so we lay the data out on disk kind of in time order and arranged by orders and uh, we call an actor as a thing that does behavior. And so being able to scan across an actor in time order and, uh, sort of right in the, in, you know, the core engine, be able to calculate these things. Whereas in, in SQL, you end up building these really complicated constructs to answer like what feels like a fairly simple question because it doesn't quite fit. And that's hard for, the, hard for the user to put it in. And then it's also really hard to get a good query plan that executes efficiently. So we, so we push that into the, the engine sort of natively answers these, these kinds of questions. Um, and then, yeah, absolutely. We, we love looking at, at behavior. <laughs> so we, uh, the, uh, you know, we use our tool for, uh, you know, uh, we can look at usage to see if customers are using features that are, you know, important for being sticky. We can, you know, we know how, you know, you can look at how, you know, how many users in an installation have used the sophisticated features is a good sign of how, you know, the health of, you know, that, that deployment. If there's nobody there who knows how to use a particular feature, maybe we should send somebody in to go help them. And on the engineering end, we collect a mass amount of telemetry data to, to make the thing fast. That's, I mean, so that's fascinating. So if I, I mean, you, that's almost a way to kind of either uh, prevent de wasted development time on a feature that nobody's using kind of globally or um, give an extra touch on a customer where you either feel like you undertrained them or underserved them in a certain feature. Um, that's really fascinating use case. I feel like everybody who develops a product should be doing that with their product. Yeah, it's it's super valuable, and uh, yeah, and it's also actually we have uh, we have customers that do freemium models, and one of the things they'll do is it's really interesting to look at kind of what are the important features for getting people to switch from free to paid, um, and so looking at that divide is is really interesting. Um, yeah, and then we you know we love using the thing you know we're sort of um, the. Uh, the performance information is also really interesting. It's not really what we built the thing for, but we internally use it like crazy to, to sort of make it better. And so you, uh, you're talking about getting paid. Let's talk about you getting paid here. Um, curious, first of all, 
as you see what you do and you go into accounts and go into markets, um, I'm curious what you think your competitors are. Um, and you know, like, I feel like sometimes in, in analytics and big data, everybody has kind of like one of everything cause they're afraid not to think that they could find <laughs> one way of looking at something. So they just kind of collect all the big datas. Um, and then how are you actually getting your customers to consume this? Like what's your consumption model? Yeah. So we, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, there's so many data companies It's sort of like, you know, there's a thousand competitors, but you know, they're not, they're kind of all, all different in their own way. And so we, you know, typically when you go somewhere, there are a bunch of tools. It's a lot of trying to, you know, most people will have a data warehouse of some sort and or a Hadoop cluster. And often they have that doing a good job kind of uh, getting them their basic metrics. And we go in and what we're able to do is let them do a lot more of this ad hoc um, exploratory stuff and make that actually accessible to their their users. So, so you know, a lot of what we... And, you know, what we do is kind of different than, you know, sort of the focus of the kinds of questions is different than what most other tools do. So often people have sort of, you know, pick almost any other data tool and trying to kind of squeeze it in to do these, these questions. Um, and so then we, um, we, uh, we sell the software as a, uh, we sell it as enterprise software and it runs in whatever your environment is. And, uh, you know, increasingly that's, uh, you know, AWS and Azure are, you know, a huge part of that. Uh, but we run it, uh, we don't, we don't host it as a SaaS service. We, uh, you know, you would, you would, you spin up your, your nodes in AWS Azure and, uh, and run our software on them. So it's, so it's single tenant. And the and kind of the important thing is that the data stays within the customer's firewall. Okay. So, um, I, I guess I had another question, but, um, <clears throat> you talked about this running, uh, in, in the public cloud, so AWS or Azure, yeah. there's, is there an ability to run it on-premises as well? Yeah, so we'll, we'll also run it on-premise. Uh, you know, typically, we'll run on uh, VMware there. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the sort of just traditional virtual machine as a really nice uh, layer of abstraction. So that's, uh, so then, you know, and increasingly on-prem setups look more like public clouds where I just, you know, it's, it's easy to allocate a bunch of things. And, uh, and in terms of deployment, we, you know, our, our goal is to be very agnostic and just run on, um, you know, just you know, if you give us a bunch of IPs with, of Linux machines, that's, that's kind of what we care about. And so, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you said somebody who had like, you know, I, I think I, if I re remember correctly, it was like multi millions or trillions of uh, kind of interactions a day. What's the what's the kind of on-prem data size of something like that? Like, what is that? What is that data set? Obviously, obviously, it could be very variable depending on what they're saving. But um, what does that kind of look like as far as how much their growth is? And um, is you know is that in megs or is that in terabytes per day kind of experience? Uh, let's see. So, um, so if you're talking a yeah, if you're in millions of Sorry, if you're in billions of events per day, which is sort of a um, the scope you'd be in as sort of a, lar a medium to large web company, um, then you're talking multiple terabytes per day, and sort of by the time you any you walk that out for a year or two of retained data, you're easily into trillions of events and uh, kind of petabyte range. Um, another thing we do is we um, so down in the 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 bottom layer of our system, we have a column store that actually saves the data and it gets quite good compression. So it's, uh, you know, depending on what you feed in, it'd be 10 or 20 to one, depending on sort of how inefficient the, the raw form is. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, so it's typically something that would be multiple petabytes raw, but might be, you know, a half a petabyte compressed if you're talking kind of trillion event range. Yeah, that's not too bad. Go ahead, Brent. You got another question. Yeah, well, it's just, I was wondering because you know if, if we talked about your article before about you, you know using level one through level three cache and then SSDs and spinning media, uh, does does the platform have the ability to um, to move data between tiers, right? So if someone um, you know wanted to go off of you know in memory to SSDs to spinning disks or maybe to the public cloud in some way, how do, how is that uh, that you know that progression handle is it by you or does a customer have to handle that so we uh, 
so so Inorana is just the, the the engine handles the kind of reading from block device into memory and manages what what lives in memory. And then once uh, but then the data at rest on disk, we have a uh, you can administratively set it up to to tier it to slower storage. And so we have a you know that's actually a pretty common uh, deployment is we'll have you know in say in a public cloud. Almost all the instances you can buy now are heavy SSD and, and not spinning disk. So often what we'll have is you run in memory with with the local SSD and then be tearing the older data off to, uh, you know, whatever is kind of the cheap storage, which you know, presumably is spinning disk behind it. Awesome. Okay, so based on policy, effectively, like you can say, hey, yeah. if this ages out to 60 days and it's never been touched, like, yeah, to the just, next year or something like that. Yeah, or usually it's more like, you know, if we hit... 80% full on the local drive, knock a few more days off the, the oldest stuff back to the, uh, back to the tiered. Okay. So I see, a, I see a lot of success and probably ease of success with, uh, you know, kind of modern companies or those companies that were built with uh, current processes and things like, you know, DevOps cultures <laughs> and kind of just born from the cloud yeah. type things. Um, when you see somebody who's, you know, as you get into some of these larger companies, much more traditional based. Uh, and maybe yeah. the only thing they have is just uh, a fantastic, um, you know, SQL database and maybe an EDW and that's it. Um, how do you, what do you do? Uh, how do you change their mindset? And frankly, how do you change the rest of their culture to actually be successful with your product? It sounds like probably the hardest sale uh, for somebody who just reads a dashboard or gets a report once a day. How do you really impact them and, and educate them to do what you're trying to teach them to do? Yeah, it's interesting. So it's, um, you know, and often in those places, there's a huge gulf between, yeah, there, there, there usually are some people who really are, you know, sort of professional data people who do it all day. And then they imagine that there's a giant gulf then to everybody else who can just look at a dashboard and you probably have to, you know, uh, you know, handhold them through it if they're even going to do that. And so, so a lot of the education is just like, this does exist, that there are, there, you know, there's lots of smart people in your organization who, who are analytical and can make, you know, good decisions based on analytical things if you give them access. And so, you know, in practice, it's usually actually finding pockets of those people where they do exist and kind of working with them to, to evangelize things. I mean, it's certainly, we are seeing increasingly in kind of more traditional enterprises, you know, every company now has some aspect of it that's digital. And that's, you know, I actually think of IoT as kind of the process of the world being instrumented so it all looks like a digital business instead of a traditional business. And so some of this culture is starting to seep in there that, you know, there are people with titles of product manager or, you know, growth, you know, manager of growth and things like that. And so, uh, so we try to find those people, and uh, and then also going into data teams, um, you know, fi finding places where there is you know a, a data team that's spending their life being data butlers, and try to you know, um, you know, let let them see the hope that there you, you know you can actually get lots of people in the organization to you know to use this stuff day to day. Um, but I think it really is shifting because they, I mean, these. Uh, is traditional companies have to have to compete with, you know, digital businesses, and they are starting to recognize that. And this is, uh, but how does that? Uh, you know, a lot of people just don't believe that there can be this, you know, a person who is analytical, who can actually look at numbers all day, but be primarily in a in a business role where they're worried about getting results for the business. Yeah, one of the Go things ahead. that I just wanted to clarify. Um, are 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 you advocating uh, that Hadoop is not necessary in the Interano world, or are they? Can they work hand in hand? Is it more of an and conversation or an or conversation? Yeah, it, it basically is an or com or sorry an and conversation. It's um, Hadoop is really good at a lot of things, and it's um, you know almost any business is going to have you know places where you know, so for example, if you're doing, um, you know, building machine models or you're doing a lot of automated, uh, you know, what a lot of people think of as kind of an IoT use cases, if this, this, and this happens, go fire some sensor or deploy something. Um, those kind of things work well on the, the open source stack. 
what we do is we complement that by uh, having something that makes it really easy for the the person to look at the data. And so that uh, so there's a lot of places where we run alongside. You know, there'd be a large Hadoop installation where you know that runs a lot of this uh, or kind of more operationalized stuff and. Then you know it might be the source of record for like the long, long history of logs, and then they uh, Enron is the thing that you use day to day when you want to look at it. And even if you're going to go build an ETL job in Hadoop, you might look at Enron first to make sure that you you know to quickly make sure you understand what's going on with it before you put the effort into to building the thing. So Enron has an ability to interact with HDFS. Uh, uh, we do have people loading data out of HDFS. Usually we tee off upstream wherever sort of the data is. So typically we don't do kind of collection at the edge. So usually with customers that are running at large scale, they have a way of kind of collecting data from whatever devices are on the edge. And but sort of the first place it lands on a server in their data center typically will tee off there. And uh, just because we... Uh, you know, for, for for the human stuff, the low latency is really important. And if you if you run through Hadoop first, you just end up with like tons of latency on the on the ingest. Um, so so as you get into the future of Interana and some of those things, especially as you mentioned, you know, IoT, um, you know, essentially putting sensors on everything, uh, and then you combine that with kind of um, you know the traditional world and how much industrial stuff out there needs sensor data. Um, mm -hmm. you, you know, there's a obvious, there's kind of an increasing conversation around a lot of that processing is being done at the edge because there's going to be so much data coming in from all this industrial stuff. And then you kind of grab the, the reasonable, you know, kind of relevant information and then send it back to the core and process it further for kind of a, a greater picture of all the sites. Um, is there risk in kind of Interana or are you already planning for how you architect for a bit of edge insight versus a larger core insight? Or, you know, are, are those customers who leverage your stuff going to want to kind of have maybe multiple instances or how does that look for you? Or are you kind of already planning for that thing? Yeah, the, um, I mean, honestly, I'm a big believer that you actually want to do as little as possible at the edge uh, because it's, uh, you know, for exactly the same reason you want the data raw is that if you sort of send the important stuff into the middle, that sounds great until, except that you, if you don't know what is important and what isn't, then, um, you kind of sent the wrong stuff. I mean, there certainly are applications where it is so, you know, it, it is so much data being collected that you're going to have to do that. But I think people, it's it's easy to, if, if you're just thinking about the sensors, like, oh my God, we're going to have all these new sensors with all this new data, but the networks and the storage are also going to be sort of increasing along with it. And so, um, you know, I think that a lot of the, the stuff to be done seriously on the edge is it usually kind of falls in the category of signal processing kind of stuff. Like if I'm, you know, reading a sensor every millisecond, um, you know, that's not really going to be anything that's ever what Interana does. But if it's, uh, you know, but once it's, uh, you know, essentially turned into, you know, it, it can it can still be a lot of data that gets back to the to the core. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, people. Uh, it is easy to underestimate how valuable it is to really have the raw thing in one place. You can just ask over and over again lots of different questions. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's a pretty good point, right? So the the sensor data that's on the edge, right? Like if I'm monitoring, you know, 17 different points on 32 different uh, air conditioners in a large facility that I've now have you know interaction with because they're mainly physical, and I put an IoT type thing on it. Uh, they're going to send a ton of data in and most of that's just, yeah, I'm okay. Uh, you throw out everything, you know, kind of 95th percentile it, bring that back. And the real insight's really going to be on that, that, that 95th percentile anyways. And you kind of, that's going to give you enough information to do what you're doing. So, uh, it's, there's just a ton of conversations while you're talking about raw data. I see a ton mm -hmm. of conversations around the idea that the WAN is just going to get crushed by the amount of information coming off of sensors. And so people are talking about kind of like. Uh, remote edge gateways to kind of filter the noise and become almost yeah. like WAN compression type experiences. But frankly, it's just a large filter of, I don't need to tell everybody all that stuff. It's all just the same thing over and over. Um, so, you know, it's just good. Yeah. I was just curious how that might impact what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think that is important stuff. And it's, I mean, yeah. And the other thing, yeah, you mentioned compression, like a lot of this stuff does actually compress really well, like a, a million readings in a row that are all zero. 
like you can you can compress that well so uh, and uh but uh yeah you know it's it, there's there really is um yeah enormous amount to be gained by by having let, let it getting the person who can look at all of it actually have access to all of it that's cool so you know what's what's kind of as you've developed a lot of these things you've learned a lot of things you have great customers where are you headed uh what's kind of the next thing you know you've hit the you've hit the head pin on the you know on the uh bowling alley there and you kind of want to start knocking other things down right what's what's really next for you to try to take out other markets and do those kind of things what's uh what are you what are you trying to do next at Interana and or, or is it simply right now you want to continue to grow what you're already doing uh, I mean, for us, a lot of what we're focused on right now is just get this in a lot more people's hands. So uh, a lot of this is going out with uh, more traditional enterprises and, uh, you know, doing a lot of, you know, as, as you mentioned, sort of education kind of, uh, you know, let people know that this exists, it's possible to do this kind of thing. Like you really can run your company this way. Um, from um, We actually just started a, we just launched a community site. So trying to get... Um, you know, just more people, you know, let, let our users that are, you know, that do have access to it, spend a lot of time, you know, be able to, to share tips and sort of build some, uh, build some community around it. And then, uh, and then sort of from, from a product point of view, just continuing to double down on make it really, really accessible, try to make that kind of first mile experience really good. Cause people get scared of data, you know, they've sort of been taught, you know, like people have told, told them their whole life, you're not allowed to do this or, you know, you did it wrong. And, you know, our goal is that, you know, like we don't believe that, like we want to get people. So when they land on it, it doesn't, it doesn't frighten them. It doesn't, uh, they can immediately get something useful and then build from there into more sophisticated things. So you mentioned, you mentioned a lot earlier about Facebook and kind of like being a, a data driven organization and everybody having access to everything. Uh, but you also mentioned, you know, privacy was key and critical. Um, Rarely are the two like full access and full disclosure and privacy are usually not best friends. Um, and so, you know, there's people talk about governance, which is why a lot of people tend to shy away from modern technologies. It's like, well, I can't see what it's doing and I can't control it. So it must not be secure because I'm the smartest security person ever or whatever. So, you know, is there what do you how do you show people the kind of governance aspect of put all your information in here and anybody has access to it? But one person who's a quote unquote data scientist can't see things that they're not allowed to see while you still have kind of full access to the data or maybe things around that data. Do you, are, is that part of your processing? Yeah. So that's actually really important because it is, and it's one of the things that is when you talk to, it's one of the fears that people have about data and making it accessible. It's just like, Oh my God, what happens? And everybody knows everything. And, you know, some of it is sort of for specific you know, real, and you know, you, you do have to have control. So, like, you know, certain people shouldn't see the, you know, the PII or the, you know, there's laws around these things, the finance data, and so there are places where there's sort of hard rules, but there's also just kind of a lot of general fear of like, oh my God, what's going to happen when everybody knows things? And you know, sort of like my answer is that like this is actually better. <laughs> like, uh, and uh, the other thing about governance that's so another actually this is kind of a subtle thing about the raw data is that the less processing you do in the pipeline it kind of the better like there you know like if you if i care doing really complicated things about data lineage is not as good as just like not having a bunch of things happen in the middle that i have to track the lineage of and so and actually that's also an important part that i about raw data is if i'm an end user being able to actually look at you know sort of like the 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 rows that make up the data gives it a lot of transparency and that's really important for getting kind of end users to trust it and and believe in it uh and so so yeah i mean there are things where you do have to, to access control it but our our goal is to like be judicious with that and put it in where there really is a strong reason that this has to be locked down but it's uh you know, often people are way more afraid of everybody knowing anything than they should be. And they're like, oh, my God, well, what are people going to think when they see that, like, our sales are dropping here? It's just like, you know what, like, they should all see that and care and do what they can to make it better. And so, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer that people being informed in the long game is really just a lot better. That's awesome. So is there, um, 
you know, is there anything we missed, right? I mean, you know, Brett and I are naturally curious, uh, but, you know, are there common, is there kind of a common question or common thread uh, with what the value is of kind of your insights and analytics that we just didn't ask? You know, I think we, yeah, we hit, we hit a lot of it. I mean, the thing that, um, I mean, the thing I think that is the most important that I, um, is that it really is just like an everyday thing. Every day, every person has things that will make them better. And this idea that there are sort of, you know, that there are high priests of data that, that have the data and everybody else has to, has to ask them for it. Just like not how, not how the world should work. Like every person is capable of it. Um, you know, and it, and it, every person is capable of iterating. I guess that's another thing that's really important is people underestimate how much of life gets done by iteration. And so you sort of imagine that, okay, we're going to answer all of these, you know, we're going to start a project where you got a bunch of questions, we're going to answer them and then we're going to know what to do and then we're going to go do it. And then we're going to like be successful and like no project ever worked that way. And so part of the key to being really good at iterating is to have short iteration cycles and to have good feedback. And so if I, you know, if I do a project like that and six months later I realize I was wrong about what question I asked at the beginning, I just set myself back six months. But if I can make that every day, you get a much, much better outcome. So that, that iteration is enormously important. And, and uh, the key to inter- iteration is information, is data. That's awesome. So you keep saying these things and it's like, I know they're real because you, you know, the, the real world exists, but it makes me sick to my stomach to know that there's a high priest of data. Like you have to go to the mountain and go, Hey, can I have a report and can you make it for me? Or, uh, the other thing was the data scientist of essentially Jira tickets. Like it's, I know it's real and I'm sure you've run into it more than once, but it's almost like sickening to, to remember or realize that those things exist in organizations. Uh, so we are glad you're helping people fix that. But you know, as you try to get this into everybody's hands, have y'all thought about using the model that AOL used where you just send out a bunch of CDs or anything like that? Um, <laughs> yeah, it probably wouldn't be CDs today. Yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is. That is <laughs> so we just, want, we just want everybody to have it because we want everybody to have access to the data. And, you know, originally the way you got at people to, get, you know, kind of have access was send them CDs. So I just thought maybe it would apply today, but clearly not. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something we want to do. I mean, and, and to be clear, like the people who are the, the high priest of data, like they don't want to be the high priest of data. Like that's like I've I've sat on both both sides of this thing and it's not good for anybody. It's like if you're, you know, the data people want to be actually figuring out difficult things, not playing as butler so yeah it's it's also one of our goals is to get this uh just to be a lot more accessible and get in a lot more people's hands absolutely well bobby we've reached the end of our time limit today um where can we find you um any of your team members or interana out in the public in the wild you guys it looks like you guys have been at like strata hadoop world and um some of the other places like that so where can we find you guys next uh let's see so we are um I'm trying to think what's coming up. We're going to be doing, uh, I think we're going to be doing some road shows coming up pretty soon in uh, a few different cities. And if you, uh, you know, if you come to our website, nirana.com, give us your email, we will, uh, we'll blast whenever we're giving a talk. We're, uh, you know, we end up doing quite a few kind of small meetups where we'll go, you know, just talk to people about data and best practices for how you measure things. Um, and, uh, Cool. Yeah. How can we find you and your company online? Uh, we are interana.com. That's it. Oh, interana stands for interactive analytics. So you can remember how to spell it. <laughs> I-N-T-E-R-A-N-A dot com. And uh, yeah, you can you can res- request a demo there, see some uh, videos of uh, customers talking about how they use it. Twitter, GitHub, YouTube. Uh, yeah, we're interana corp on Twitter. And uh yeah, and I think yeah, we're we're on Facebook, but I'd say uh Interana.com is the best place to find us. <laughs> imagine imagine right. that. Imagine that. Yeah. And then the final thing for you, uh, Bobby, and, and this doesn't have to necessarily be industry related, but we always like to ask our guests, uh, do you have a suggestion for a book or a website um that could be useful to our listeners out there? Or it's just a good book. 
great book I read recently is called The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined by a guy named Steven Pinker. Um, it is uh, yeah, interesting and surprising. It has nothing to do with technology. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Well, cool. So to all of our listeners out there, uh, we are going ahead and shut down the hot aisle for today. But uh, tweet us, get uh, get with us on social media. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear. We're always looking for suggestions. Um, today was a perfect example of a suggestion, and uh, we loved it. We learned a lot. And we hope you did, too. So, Bobby, with that, we're going to shut down the hot aisle. But I wanted to thank you first uh, for being on the show with us because it was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, thank you, guys. This was great. All right, Brian, we out. Hang up.